This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that's a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and print from its guest curator with free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Past curators have included Alex Soth, Mark Steinmetz, and Melissa Catanese, and many other photographers who you've heard on this podcast. I gotta say, charcoal really is the best and most exciting way to stay up to date with the most essential work in contemporary photography. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. I got to Susan Mizelis's Mott Street studio a few minutes early, and one of her assistants let me in to set up my gear. As I was waiting for her to arrive, I was leafing through a worn-out first edition of Carnival Strippers, thinking to myself, nervously, in that bout of anxiety before an interview. What are we even going to talk about that she's going to find interesting? The door clicked open and she flew into the basement at studio, apologizing for a Magnum Foundation meeting running a few minutes late. She asked one of her assistants to prepare two cameras for some portraits of an old acquaintance she was going to do that evening at the theater, and rummaged through a couple manila files looking for a note that she didn't want to forget. She excused herself to shoot at a quick email, but as soon as she sat down at the table and put the headphones on, her attention in a split second became so focused and engaged as if none of the other million things she was working on or thinking about mattered. And that focus grabbed and threw me into the zone. My insecurities and preoccupations of what we're going to talk about dissipated in favor of an attention and curiosity in her in that present moment. Susan Mizelis has spent her life going into situations and making such varied acquaintances with who she's photographed over time, from young teenage girls outside her home on Mott Street to women doing striptease at New England County Fairs. She's documented human rights issues in Nicaragua to the goings-on of an exclusive S&M club in New York called Pandora's Box. Meeting people and making quick acquaintances is one thing, but then making good pictures in those situations is another. It requires a kind of focus, a kind of getting into a zone that I saw so palpably when we got together that day. Mizellus was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1948, studied at Harvard earning her MA in visual education, taught in the New York public school system, and has worked as one of our most esteemed documentary photographers for close to 50 years. In 1976, she joined Magnum Photos and became a full member in 1980. I was curious to know what the agency, with all its history and clout, meant to her. I didn't really know what Magnum was. I think it means something to me now, and maybe I just, I think it's a, it's a, to what extent it's a community, to what extent it's a orientation, a set of values, a set of concerns that are shared amongst a group of people, but broadly defined. People's practice varies. Watching it grow over more than 40 years has been a kind of fascinating process, my colleagues included, mm -hmm. who they become. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the fact that we still have connectivity across five generations or more is kind of astounding. And so it's not about what does it do for you. It's what, what does it mean to be part of of an evolving community. Is it still a very positive experience for you? I wouldn't be there if it wasn't. I mean, but I, I, it's, it's not a there there. You know, at one time, having 
literally what's almost a base camp, you know, what was called the photographer's room where people would crisscross randomly and arbitrarily intersect and, and uh, share work or drink a beer or whatever it might have been. You know, those kinds of intersections were vital. And I st still think they are. They're just probably happening in different formations. You know, sometimes it's cross-generational. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's more uh, amongst particular sectors. Mm. Um, I love working with some of the photographers on projects that we do, you know, kind of multiple perspectives on the same theme, mm -hmm. being in the same place. We did a project a couple of years ago called the Postcards, Postcards from America, where a number of us traveled together, some of us lived together. It, the num who they were were constantly changing, so it was kind of like a jazz set, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I loved, I loved the experience of that. I want to ask you about Carnival Strippers and wh what that interest was for you. How did you come to the project, and, and, and what was your interest in it? See, to me, it seems so incredibly obvious now looking back. I mean, I don't think it was then because I hadn't really worked as a photographer. I didn't really know what having a life as a photographer was going to be. Yeah. But um, seeing that young woman who's on the cover of the book standing on what looked like an auction block, which I've said many times, it was basically a ticket booth, but her distant gaze, all the men surrounding her, controlling the various interactions, the barker, the guy that controlled the entry to the back of the tent. It's early 70s, a lot of feminist thinking in that period. Who is she? Who does she want to project herself to be seen as? Mm -hmm. Those were fascinating questions. So I just wanted to get to know what was the girl show? How did, how did the work, what was the working life of these women? like you know the interactions with men both in the public sphere and in the more private sphere what's so the it you know it took a long time it doesn't you may start with a set of i don't think you verbalize those questions you're just intrigued and then you are kind of intuitively i followed as much as i could you know weekend to weekend followed the fair where the the girl shows were uh kind of embedded in the back of the fairgrounds and it just unfolded. And, you know, the, the more I stayed, the more I wanted to know more, which has actually been true for almost every place I've gone. Yeah. The places I go that I really uh, get immersed in, you know, that's, that's very intuitive. It's not as intellectualized or intention isn't the quite the right word. It's following the feeling of something. What do you think the difference is between your preconceived notions of what you thought that work would be or would become and what the actual pictures ended up speaking to? I didn't have the kind of preconceptions that you're imagining. I mean, I, I didn't know that I would follow them weekend to weekend through a summer and then go back the next summer and the next summer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was going to make a book. I didn't know that the book would be made into a play by another young Puerto Rican playwright. I didn't know that it would be my entry into Magnum and that my whole life would be reshaped in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's being drawn to what you don't know. The way you're describing that process, it sounds... Uh, very akin to Frederick Wiseman, the legendary documentary filmmaker's method of working, who you work for mm -hmm. after school, right? Yeah. What do you remember about working with him? What did you learn from him? 
Oh, that's a great question. I, I, you know, I've only recently thought that maybe, you know, Fred basically does sound on the films. Somebody else does the visual. And I've, of course, always been visual, but I've done sound principally when I first started with strippers. The sound, I was so alert to the sound and the, the different kinds of voices and perspectives. So, you know, right alongside of making photographs with carnival strippers, I was capturing the inter actions between the women in the dressing room, the women and the men on the front stage and the backstage, their reflections about their own personal biographies. So maybe some of that came from being around, I mean, being around Fred meant, um, you know, syncing up reels and um, Mm -hmm. uh, he was doing the film Basic Training at the time. Mm -hmm. And that made a lot of sense for me because, of course, being a generation of 68, anti-war, I was fascinated by the basic training film, which really was taking a closer look of how young men in America were being trained to be at war. Mm. Um, But I don't think there was any direct tutelage. It was much more... um, He had a great ear, and I think I probably developed a little bit more of one being around him. Uh, I think that the montage style of film, I think even if I look at my... Maybe the strippers into the next book, Nicaragua, I think it's more cinematic. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about the montage, the, the intercuts, you know, the, the movement through, not knowing where it takes you, but there's very, they're very narrative. Was the photo book always really important to you? I think it became the form that contained as best I could um, a complex set of almost layered experiences that I wanted an, a reader to have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Carnival Strippers has the voices parallel to the photographs of various points of view, and Nicaragua is visual, and then it shifts into the back matter, and the back matter has very different kinds of primary text, statistics and poems and oral histories. So I really wanted... A reader to kind of um, kind of be drawn into thinking about what where the came where the photographs came from. Were there any other books at the time that you were really excited about that informed the way you put Carnival Strippers together? Yeah, I think I, I've sort of pointed to conversations with the dead. <laughs> I was gonna. I figured it's hard much. not to with yeah. Danny Lyon. Yeah, that might have been the only one that hinted at different possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, the more obvious monographs were either with forwards or afterwards. Not, not, I think, you know, this immersive approach is the thing I was most drawn to mm-hmm. in that early period of the 70s. Carnival Strippers was first, before it was a book, it was a, it was a show, and the, the sound in that space was live, floating over the photographs. So you might have heard a collage of voices, you know, might have been a stripper, it might have been her, and engaged with somebody who was a client and and the barker trying to draw people into the show um the aftermath reflections of what does it mean to be doing this work mm-hmm. um the tensions the exhaustion the depression the exhilar- exhilarations um a mix a mix and it was really a remix tape in a way mm-hmm. the collage sound 
so you heard that and, and moved around and saw the photographs. It changed when I made a book because at the time you didn't, you couldn't put a CD-ROM in the back of the book. <laughs> it took about 30 years to do that. But, yeah. you know, initially I transcribed all the tapes. There were probably 200 hours of tape. I started cutting them up and creating this narrative throughout the photographs. So it's not an illustration. You don't read a text on the left and the person on the right is there. Um, I wanted the the presence of these these voices around my images. When did the book come out? 76. So by that time, you had already moved on. You were doing Prince Street Girls work, and you had, you had gone to Nicaragua yet? No, no, no. I'm beginning no. Prince Street, because I move here, same place where we are right now. Okay. So 44 years later, I'm, wow. you know, I'm still here. Uh, in the same neighborhood, though none of the Prince Street girls are here. The One of the boys in, um, who wished he was a Prince Street girl, mm -hmm. Frankie, is still here. But all the rest of them had moved to New Jersey or Staten Island, Brooklyn. What do you mean, one of the boys who wished he was a Prince Street girl? Well, he, he was a relative of a few of them, and he loved to hang out with them. Mm -hmm. And Frankie, to this day, is, I think... Uh, very deeply attached to them. They, mm -hmm. they grew up together. They went to Catholic school on the corner here together. They hung out on the corners together. And um, so anyway, the Prince Street Girl Project, Girls Project, begins in, when I moved to the neighborhood and extends over a, a couple of years into next decades. I mean, mm -hmm. I still know them, though I, I don't, I'm not photographing them in the same way anymore. Um you sort of alluded to the way that you stumbled upon Carnival Strippers and how it just developed into a project. Yeah. Is that how your projects usually work? Do you usually, do they start off as projects? They start off as curiosities that you follow, I guess. Well, I wouldn't say curiosities, though the following is right. I mean, in, the, in effect, the Prince Street girls kind of entrapped me by they were hanging out on the corner of Prince Street and Mott, and they they threw a light as I was bicycling past them, you know, with a mirror. And that was the sort of first sense that they were focusing on me and curious who I was, the reverse, in a way, of me looking at Lena on the ballet and wondering who she was. Um, and Nicaragua really comes in a different way. I'm, I'm reading about Nicaragua in the New York Times, and I have no idea where Nicaragua is. Mm -hmm. So I think... I think the impulse to have the active faith to go out and find out more and can come from different sources. You have to be open, you know, to turn a corner and not know where it leads you. I'm always curious where that sustained interest comes from, though. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of people are curious about different things, and, you know, you go and you check something out and you investigate a bit, but what keeps you there for so long? And you always worry that will it, will it come again? Uh-huh. I mean, you know, I, I think even with Carnival Strippers, when I finished, so-called finished, finished men, I did a book, I'd done some, some small exhibits. Um, I couldn't imagine thinking and caring about anything as much as I had about them. And so, you know, it turns out Nicaragua has begun a great, a deep, deep, deep connection for much longer, many, same number of decades, but a different kind of engagement over time. Um, in which, in a way, I make a set of photographs that are um, moments captured, and I'm thinking a lot about time, over time, the, how you represent time and how people reflect on the time of a photograph. 
um, the people in a photograph, the people who have seen that photograph. So it's opened up a whole other kind of set of layers of, of thinking for me. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I hope to continue to feel as I do about them. I mean, this morning I was very moved and it's very disturbing could even say depressing that what was dreamed of in the 70s and certainly the period I captured 78 79 um, has now become a kind of intransigent situation which there's no dialogue there's no public dialogue that's that's allowing people to move forward together it's kind of self-destructing mm -hmm. and it's a very impressive resistance alliance of people trying to um, open up dialogue mm -hmm. and it's it's painful to watch because they've tried all the different logical ways that a public protest might first be an expression of discord mm -hmm. um, I mean we see it in our country too not your country Canada has We're a little is, softer. You're, you're, you're at a better time I would say than we are but, you know, what does the protest, the form of protest do? What does it mean to protest decisions, actions? You know, what do you do? Where do you, I've always said, where do you put your body? You know, so mine tends to go places where I can witness, document, hopefully record, reflect upon situations over time, not just in the moment of time that I capture. What role did you feel that your photos played in that dialogue? Well, it's changed because in very beginning years, you know, capturing the protagonists in the streets of Nicaragua and later El Salvador and other parts of Latin America, um, you do really believe that people just don't know and if they knew more, mm -hmm. right, they would feel kinship and yeah. the kinship would strengthen those, those movements. But is that really true? Do the photographs allow us to do more than say, oh, we know, but what do we do when we know? That's the big question. Yeah. I remember hearing Don McCullen talk about making his work in Vietnam and feeling that, that his photos would really, really make a difference. And he produced, you know, such an amazing body of work there, such amazing imagery. But I remember hearing him say that he fell into a big depression after because he kind of felt or he had the realization that his photos didn't really do anything. They didn't have that power that he expected them to have. Well, that's a kind of classic line, and, and mm -hmm. McCullen did, did talk about that very openly, which I think was helpful to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. What do photographs do? Sometimes they do a huge amount. I mean, we can all talk about Alan Kurdi as an example of you know changing policy in Germany and migration migrants being welcome though it's, there's a lot of aftermath and unintended consequences since then. Um, I don't know that I was... I think what I thought photographs were doing was portraying, as I said, the protagonists in the street. They made history. I don't think the photographs did. The photographs informed and definitely influenced in some ways how people might have felt about what was happening in Nicaragua at that time. Um, but they didn't stop the Contra War, which mm -hmm. was, you know, military aid again to overthrow the Sandinistas. Uh, they didn't stop the aid and military aid in El Salvador after the Marinol nuns were killed and 
that was documented, or the Mosote Massacre, the greatest massacre, the largest massacre in, in Latin America. So I'm, I don't know that we know um, what they do in that moment and what we can expect or uh, hope for is one thing, um, but we have to look very closely at with a little more rigor. Um, that doesn't mean we don't make them and continue to make them. So, you know, this idea of witnessing in the world, which doesn't mean you have to be a professional. Now we're at a whole different time where anyone with a camera can document what they see. And the question is, what do they do with that? Mm -hmm. You know, and how do they contextualize that work? So it lives on and has, um, more potency mm. beyond their own subjective perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, it's amazing listening to you. I feel like you're such a good teacher. You've been teaching for a long time, right? Well, in and out. Not, no, I first was teaching fourth and fifth, sixth graders with a pinhole camera made out of a shoebox. Yeah. So I, it's a different kind of teaching. But I think I, it's what life has taught me, what photography and and people in my photographs have taught me by, you know going back and finding them. I mean, it's, it's a process. Mm -hmm. It's not... You learn by doing. I, I learn by doing. That's a classic John Dewey. Yeah. yeah, I believe in learning learning by doing and learning by not knowing and not being afraid to not know. Yeah. I think that's a big lesson of life. Is that what you try and impart to your students? I think in this age particularly, I mean, and maybe it's been for a number of years, the fear of just going out, not knowing what you'll find, how you'll be seen, how you'll be received, whether or not what you do has any value has paralyzed people. So for me, it's a response to those questions mm -hmm. that I seek where I put myself, where I place myself. But of course, I'm carrying my whole history with me, as are you. And so how does that come together to be a meaningful act? You know, you're interviewing me. Why me? There are dozens, dozens and dozens of photographers whose work you've seen in one form or another. Mm -hmm. So why are you asking me questions? Yeah. Right? What are you trying to find and what can we share about whatever experiences we've had? You know, I I seriously and I, what I was saying this morning in this class was the Molotov man who I by complete coincidence captured an image that became very uh, iconic. It had an, its own life. Mm -hmm. It was used and transformed in multiple ways. And I said, you know, otherwise I may never have thought about that idea that a life, the life of a specific image that came from other people taking that image and transforming it. And it wasn't about the legal rights of IP, you know, the intellectual property. It was really about the... And maybe people look at Instagram that way or, or look at, you know, the things that virally move. Hmm. I got a picture not that many months ago from somebody on Facebook who took one of the photographs of the Molotov men and put a photograph right next to it, which was of the Molotov men of today in hmm. April 23rd, making an image of himself taken by a wire photographer perhaps, of a similar gesture. So that image was living in that, in someone's mind, looking at the two together, even though they're 40 years apart. So you never know what's going to happen. And you can't really protect pictures either. Or the people in the photographs that you make. 
I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Susan Mizellis. To see more of her work, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How do you feel about Instagram? I've kind of said that if I were in Nicaragua today, I could see the value of working with Instagram. Um, I don't find it. My, I'm not a native speaker. What can I say? Yeah. It's not. My thumb doesn't do the walking every day through my Instagram accounts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm fascinated to see other work in multiple forms. I prefer probably exhibition and book form. Mm-hmm. It's very fragmented for me. I'm always, the, the, the jury's always out. There are people that try to convince me to do it. I don't find I wake up in the morning wanting to do that. That's just not what I do with my time. Yeah. It's all about time and, you know, where you put not only your eye, but your mind and your, your focus. For sure. And it's, all, it's very akin to the way people text. I mean, the way people text is, it, to me, it seems like this, like, very, very potent and interesting time in, in the history of, of language in in what's been going on how people kind of yeah. speak to each other well that's true and you know the first time i got an r as an r or u as a u or a k as a k mm-hmm. okay yeah. i mean i get it shorthanding our lives yeah but actually i think that's part of the problematic nature that our lives are so much more intensified by that little machine that we've only had in our lives 11 years is smartphone mm-hmm. um and it's transformative and you can't not be present all the time for everyone. And actually, that's exhausting. So the question is, how do you, um, when I say keep focus, keep the feelings that you have that are yours, find a focus that you can actually frame, whether it's a single photograph or it's a project of some sort. You know, that's, that's a very... Um, it's an internalized pre- process. Uh, versus a mimicking one. So it's, I'm interested in not following other people to see what they do. I'm interested in seeing what they've done when they bring it together, but Mm -hmm. not on the trail, leaving little crumbs, kind of like Red Riding Hood, following somebody somewhere for what. I mean, I I guess my tendency is to want to see when they bring things together, whether or not it reads for me. So I love discovering new books that, be they young or old, photographers have put together. Mm-hmm. Um, or, as I say, exhibitions. So the film form is very narrative, obviously. You give yourself over for a certain period of time to go with someone where they want to take you. Mm-hmm. What do you think photos do best or photos do better than other mediums that do better than painting or sculpture or... Well, I like the two sides of it. One is the photograph that is really evidential and very specific uh, and um, 
yeah, as one side and the other side is something that I'm, I'm uh, kind of mesmerized by, but I don't necessarily know what the meaning is of, and it just holds me. It keep, it's mystifying in some ways it, for whatever sets of reasons. There are many examples of what that would potentially be. So I like that. So the, f- the photographs, photographs can have that very um, deep value as a witness of our time and therefore live in time for a long, long time, as I said, or, or they can just be fanciful. They can just be surreal. They can be, you know, kind of intimate and, and surprising in different ways. So they, they don't all have to do the same thing. How do you think about making an image that you want to go back to over and over? Have you ever ever thought about qualities in images that do that? Well, that's funny. I'm just trying to think what's a picture that has done that for me within the last, you know, two or three days. (laughs) And, um, I did see one. It was in a, it was in a conference about vernacular photography and whether or not that was art photography or not art is vernacular, you know, what is its definition? Um, and there was someone who presented a photograph from Iran, turn of the century, um, that a a figure was scratched out and we were supposing who the figure might have been. There are three figures, children actually, in the frame and someone missing. And so, you know, that's that's a provocation of one kind that stayed with me. Just how would we know? Mm -hmm. Because it was a glass plate, so there's nothing left. It's not like there's a negative hidden or... um, so what stays with you, you know? What do you carry with you? What do you stitch your lone little needle through and hold together in your mind, whether mm-hmm. or not it's in the form of a book? I think, I think images have this uh, wonderful shadow of life inside you, inside your mind. They're not always in the bright sunlight, um, to be defended, and that's kind of back to the the Instagram is something the defense of the image versus the one that lives more subliminally mm-hmm. um, that might have more power ultimately. Thinking so it's it. this yeah. difference between the you know what's really explicit, which the witnessed image, you know, the testimonial image, the evidential image, which still has a lot of power for me, and that you know, that I can be propelled and provoked to want to make under certain circumstances. Like someone has to be there and the being there is the essence of it. You have to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can also be completely intrigued by more fictional relationships that get projected into the space of a photograph. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about another project that is obviously the the most closely connected to Carnival Strippers, which is Pandora's Box, which you started doing in the uh, mid-90s. Yeah. I guess I'm interested in that sustained interest in that subject matter, just to start. So I come to Pandora's Box through Nick Broomfield, who's doing a film, mm-hmm. who I had met actually at the time of Carnival Strippers. And when he was... He was doing a. He was invited by HBO, I think, or maybe he proposed to HBO. I don't know, to do a film about S and M culture. So he traveled around and looked at a lot of, of settings and tried to figure out where to do the filming. 
And he found this place called Pandora's Box, which at the time was on 18th Street, just off Fifth Avenue in New York. Mm -hmm. And I saw him and Nick said to me, this is Carnival Strippers in the 90s. You've got to see this place. Mm -hmm. And so I went, not knowing anything about S&M culture, not knowing what it would feel like to just kind of go off the up an elevator and walk into the parlor that then was called the Disneyland of Domination because each of the rooms had a different theme mm -hmm. from a medical room to a Versailles room to a dressing, dressing up, cross-dressing room. And again, it was a kind of immersion into a culture to try and make sense of what is the fantasy there. Then mm -hmm. the fantasy wasn't performed for my camera, but they were performing for each other, the dominatrix and the submissive. And that dynamic itself... Uh, being allowed to be to be privileged in the space to watch to feel myself as a voyeur not knowing kind of the terms of the agreement um, a lot of it had this is before Abu Ghraib and of course post Abu Ghraib it reads differently to me mm -hmm. but I had spent a lot of time in Latin America before that and heard about interrogations and torture and I think there's a part of me that was you know, fixated on what does it mean to do it and to receive it and, you know, what's, and what does it mean to, for someone, two people to essentially choose to engage in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's what sustained me, just trying to understand the dynamic that was self-created and um, not imposed as a normal interrogation would be. I mean, I have friends in jail today, mm -hmm. one in Bangladesh, another one in Istanbul, another one in Managua, and I can't imagine what it's like to be them at this time. Mm -hmm. There's no communication with them. I imagine the torture is just being isolated as they are mm -hmm. from the world that they were inhabiting before the random arbitrary arrests that they faced. So how do they live in turn? How do they survive that? What is that, you know, the stamina that that takes, the discipline to not allow yourself to get depressed Mm -hmm. when you're completely cut off from everything that your life force wants to be doing. Mm -hmm. So torture is one more stage, but just that isolating, interrogating cell. Mm -hmm. um, Which you started to think more about. I watched, I felt like I, Pandora's box, I, I know that I had nightmares related to the shooting, the working, doing the work. In yeah. the, I mean, I worked very intensely there. Um, but that at root, it's drawing on something else. And that's part of what it's drawing on. Mm -hmm. When you say that you work very intensely there, what does it feel like when you're working intensely? It means I'm waking up in the middle of the night thinking about where I need to be and what I'm thinking and what I've seen. And then it's working 15 or 18 hours a day, just non-stop absorbed completely uh, assimilating for the most part assimilating interacting you know there are lots of as I said I work more out of questions so there there are lots of interactions mm -hmm. self-interrogating why am I doing this what am I so intrigued by what is going on here what am I really seeing and capturing what am I not able to see in that case it was over three weeks of very long days mm -hmm. and looking at the work and then I put it away for a long time mm -hmm. and um, 
it it so happened that Magnum was doing its 50th show right around the time that I was doing that work and it was included in a, as a small series. Mm-hmm. And that led to a designer saying, let's do a book. And then it became a different process, looking at the work and trying to figure out what I had, again, seen, captured, m- missed, and how else to complement the photographs. So there are lots of letters from the dominatrix. There's some interviews that I do. Mm-hmm. With clients. With a gap of about 20 or 25 years between Carnival Strippers and Pandora's Box, what do you think the differences in the themes of the work are? Not sure they're, well, the difference is themes. It's 20 years separating them. I called it a show after that, Intimate Strangers. They both are about intimacy with strangers. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're both uh, about women who feel empowered in relation to Relationship, sexual relationships with men mm-hmm. uh, in certain ways uh, and the power dynamic of men who dominate at the same time those lives so they determine the structure of the exchange the, the sh- in the case of Pandora's Box it was mutually owned by a man and woman um, and in the case of Carnival Strippers most of the girl shows were owned by men um, so there are certain parallel dynamics. Then if you look at the aesthetics, they're quite different. Carnival mm-hmm. Strippers is black and white. Pandora's Boxes is in color. There is the seduction of the color. The uh, Where you're shooting so slide film? I'm shooting with color negative at that time. Color negative. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is all I could do and couldn't have done before because it didn't exist in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to change formats. I like to change... Not only the camera, the the film, the way I work, the mm. kind of lenses can change. You know, there's certain projects I've done with cameras that really dictate the way the formal rendering of the of the work, such as the wide lux that I use with a project called Crossings, which is about migrants crossing from U.S. into Me- Me- Mexico, U.S. border. Um, those are part of the experiments to kind of capture in the best way I can whatever it is that's this intrigue. It's not the information, it's the intrigue. It's the what draws me in, what holds me for as long as it does. Mm-hmm. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. This yeah. whole thing has just kind of flown by so quickly. Well, I love that you're sitting here in my studio and you see all the piles around me, tons of books. Too many photographs, some things on the walls. It's really unbelievable. I mean, I mean, we're really kind of surrounded by so much history and work. Yeah, and folders and folders and folders of research. Yeah. You know, if we sat here a little longer, I'd pull out a, a, a file drawer of all the projects I didn't do that I hoped and wanted very much to do. I mean, there's always what you didn't do that you wish you did. Somebody once asked in a biography, don't tell me what you did, though. Tell me what I don't know that you did. Mm. And that's also, you know, what we get into these tracks of memory, and it's very hard to get off them. I mean, the things, the projects that failed because you couldn't make the connection you hoped to, um, the people who you never found again, you know, who, who, who you began a process with, I think, you know, I I think that actually should be spoken about a lot more because I feel like it can be both very inspiring and daunting to see fully finished bodies of work. Absolutely. Because you're only seeing the best in such a small sliver of it. And 
to me, it just seems like photography is so much about failure. There's so much more failure than success. Yeah. And you got to really get comfortable. And you have to decide what, what is failure and what is success. You know, sometimes, I mean, in this, I just finished a survey show that was at SFMOMA recently and came down and the last room is, uh, included something about domestic violence that I was working on in 92 and went back to two years ago in, in a different setting in the UK. So there are also themes that and concerns that dwell in you for long periods of time and find new expressions when the opportunity arises. So it's kind of mining yourself, mining your archive, interacting as you see things in the everyday that can lead you somewhere else. Um, I think where my, my failures have been, if anything, a failure to trust myself to just do it mm-hmm. and not worry about what's going to happen with it. And so I can be victim also of, is this really interesting enough? And self-doubt. Doubt can eat you up, you know. Um, not if you don't, you know, it's kind of like, can you desvio, as they say in Spanish, can you take a kind of hmm. detour off the main road of what you're doing? How, much, how far do you allow yourself to go before you discover it's a new path? How did you learn to do that? I mean, was it just something that you kind of got more comfortable with over time? Yeah, I guess I just didn't know what my path was going to be. I mean, it wasn't foreseeable, and that's what I kind of love most. Making it up as you go along. That's perfect. That's the perfect ending. (laughs) You keep making it up as you go along, and you hope you'll have a little more time (laughs) to do that. Thanks for having me here. Thanks. Thanks to you. That was my conversation with Susan Mizellis that we recorded in New York's Lower East Side. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Original music in this episode was produced by Adam Feingold. To see more of Susan Mizellis' work and other guests who have appeared on this show, follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. If you like the show, also take a second and give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show, and we'd really appreciate it. To find out more information about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org. Thanks a lot, and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.